Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Oh dear, our lovely program of uh, themes from the Lord's Prayer has been messed up. Last week we were due to look at the text, um, Thy kingdom come on a, thy, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The only trouble was that Simon Oliver, who was due to preach last week, all of his children went down with a bug, his wife went down with a bug, and he was halfway there to go down and join them. And so he couldn't be here. And I'm deeply grateful that Gene Summers, at very, uh, Simmons rather, at very, very short notice, uh, was able to fill in for us and conduct worship, but she really didn't have time to prepare something completely new in just a few hours, really, so that she could take that service, but we're very grateful to her. Now that means, oh dear, because we scheduled everything so that we would finish with the best text for Easter Sunday. It's the epilogue to the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's because of the resurrection that we know that the kingdom of God really did come in a very real way and that our Lord is living. So that's a good plan, but unfortunately, the best laid plans of minds and men don't always go according to pattern. So what we're going to do? Well, this week, I'm going to do what, Steve, what should have been done last week with Simon, and I'm going to preach on, uh, you know, for thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then next week, we would normally be going and preaching about, give us this day our daily bread. And that is a very important part of the prayer because it's the watershed. It's the high point in one sense. We're moving through worshipping God and celebrating all he is and his kingdom and what it means. And then we say, if we're going to be on that journey with you, Lord, we need you to feed us, sustain us, and support us. So that's what it is. We need food for the journey, and then we'll live in accordance with God's purposes. Well, that would be all right, but it would mess up completely the schedule, so I'm going to miss it out. I'm going to briefly mention, give us this day our daily bread, but that's something I can do easily after Easter, and because you're so smart, you won't be messed up by the fact that it's out of sync. So next week, we're going to move on, forgive as we forgive. And if you don't like the idea of missing out on the bread in this series at this time, then you have to forgive me as well, won't you? But that's what we'll try and do. But I will preach on that theme uh, after Easter uh, on a time that's suitable. And uh, that, I hope, will stand in its own right, but also complete the picture of the Lord's Prayer that we're enjoying working through together. So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This phrase is typical of Jewish poetry and Jewish literature. It's typically Jewish, it's parallelism. I think I told you before that the Psalms have Jewish poetry as the way they do things. That instead of rhyming with the words at the end of the sentence, like, you know, the cat sat on the mat... That's a very childish form of poetry, but at least mat and cat do rhyme with each other. But in Hebrew poetry, it's the concept, the idea that's being communicated that is reflected in the next line. So, the Lord is my shepherd. What, so what? What does that mean? Therefore, I shall not want. Because the Lord is shepherd, 
we don't want for anything. He is with us. God is our refuge and strength. What does that mean? He's a very present help in time of trouble. That's typical Hebrew poetry. And that's virtually what we've got in the Lord's Prayer now, although it's not quite so poetic. It says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and that in a very real way is a commentary on what we were thinking about a few weeks ago when we said, hallowed be thy name. And we remember that to hallow the name of God is to honour him both by the words that we use, the prayer that we offer, and the life that we live. We honour the name of God as we live according to his teaching and so prove to be his disciples. So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, says what it means to hallow the name of God you actually seek to implement the teaching of the kingdom in your lifestyle so that God's will will be done on earth. To hallow is to recognize his being and majesty. To pray for the coming of the kingdom is to ask that his authority should be accepted. And to ask that his will be done says, will, may your purposes be fulfilled. And we accept our responsibility to make his will our own and commit ourselves to work with him for the furtherance of those aims. And so this style of writing moves naturally on from his name and nature to his authority and then his will or purpose. Well, what does this phrase, the kingdom of God, actually mean? There are over 50 sayings, kingdom sayings, and parables of Jesus in the four Gospels. And the first thing to say is, it's not a geographical term. We're very conscious of the fact that the kingdom of Great Britain, or the United Kingdom, has a monarch, and we are a separate nation from the Republic of France. There's a real difference between the two. But this word is better translated as the reign of God, the sphere of influence of God. So we're saying, your kingdom come, says actually, may we obey your teaching live in tune with who you were and the values that you taught in your life, Lord Jesus. Well, the prophets long foretold the coming of the kingdom. And Isaiah of Babylon tells of the impending return of the exiles to the promised land. They look forward to a time when God himself will come with power and majesty to bring salvation to his people but he will also come as a gentle shepherd who really cares for his flock. And so the long reign of evil will come to an end and the people will be set free. Jesus knew all these prophecies intimately and he modelled his own ministry upon them. It's significant that many of the prophecies that we sing in Handel's Messiah come from 2nd Isaiah, Isaiah of Babylon, because they're the prophecies that look forward to the coming of Jesus. In the time of Jesus, many religious Jews were horrified that the promised land had been deserted or desecrated by the pagan rule of Rome with all its tyranny. They were convinced that God would fulfill these ancient prophecies and swiftly act to assert his rule. Speaking of the kingdom, 
of God's involvement would have been very much part of the daily conversation of many Jews in the time of Jesus. There were very many different attitudes towards the kingdom. Firstly, the zealots were like the jihadis of their time. They were the revolutionaries who wanted violence to bring in the kingdom. That would be inaugurated as the Jews won the battle and kicked out the Romans. The Pharisees were religious leaders and they believed that the kingdom would only come if we kept God's moral law, a law that had been worked out in intricate detail by the scribes so as to cover every contingency. Jesus saw himself as a rival authority to that on which Judaism was based, namely the law. And of course, the essence of his teaching is in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, there were many different expectations as to how change would come in the time of Jesus, but all were united in the conviction that things were pretty desperate, and all therefore hoped that God would take his power and reign. So with great conviction, in the synagogue and in their homes, the Jews would pray for the kingdom to come in their lifetime. Exalted and hallowed be his great name. In the world which he created according to his will, may he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days. Now those are words from the contemporary Kaddish prayer that was being prayed in the time of Jesus and was actually written down a few years after that, but was known by heart in the synagogues and in the homes of the people. It has distinct similarities with the Lord's Prayer. There is, though, a major difference between the two. And Professor Joachim Jeremias, a New Testament scholar, writes, in the Kaddish, the prayer is by a congregation which stands in the darkness of the present age and asks for the consummation. In the Lord's Prayer, the words may be sim similar. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But the congregation knows that the turning point has already come because God has already begun his saving work. The Thy kingdom come is a prayer for the consummation of that which has already been determined. The kingdom has already come in Jesus, and we pray that it may spread, not as a result of human enterprise and activity, but through God's initiative. So, the beginning of Mark's gospel, we read, Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And that message would have created a sense of excitement in the crowd. The years of waiting were over and the new age had dawned. It's as if Jesus was saying, you've wanted it, yearned for it, prayed for it, and wondered if it would ever happen. Right, it's happening now. This is the time the kingdom of God has come upon you. No wonder the news spread rapidly and the crowds flocked to hear him. And the signs of his reign, his power 
his authority were seen in the miracles that he performed and they were proclaimed in the parables that he told. And that brings us back to the prophecies of Isaiah of Babylon, which Jesus knew intimately, and the passage that was read to us by Janet earlier in the service. Hear it again as I read it now, and see how Jesus fulfilled that, to say now is the time when God is supremely acting. Now is the time when the Messiah is amongst you. And yet all of this was written many years before the birth of Jesus, some 500 or more years. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, and who says to Zion, Jerusalem in other words, your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices, and together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Well, believing that Jesus made such prophecies the theme of his own work, Professor Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, suggests that he took the three parts of Isaiah's kingdom message and set about implementing them, putting them into practice. He talks about the release for captive Israel. And that's why his gospel is a gospel of grace. The story of the prodigal son is a wonderful story that says, here was this young man who did everything wrong, everything that the law said he shouldn't do. He went against all the customs of a good Jewish family. He let the side down, and yet God's grace offered him forgiveness, the chance to start again, the motivation to be made whole, and a new framework for living. That is the gospel of grace. It brings release to those who were captives. That's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus spoke about the defeat of evil. <clears throat> He spoke as if the long reign of evil which had enslaved God's people would now be defeated through his own work. And he incorporated into the prophecies of Isaiah the teaching of the four servant songs which talked about the nature of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah who was to come. And Jesus made those his own, based his ministry upon them. The prophecy as a whole sets out the promise of the kingdom of God, but the servant songs within it set out a job description for how the promise is to be realized. And Jesus knew that this was his unique vocation and calling, and this, he believed, was how evil would be defeated. And that is why the temptations that Jesus went through in the wilderness, which we remember at the beginning of Lent, that is why they were so significant, because those temptations were tempting Jesus to do things that were quite different 
than actually show the message of this redemption and salvation that Jesus was called to offer. He refused to accept the good at the expense of the best. He wasn't going to just turn his ministry into a, a soup kitchen by turning stones into bread. He wasn't going to do gimmicks by jumping off the pedestal of a temple. He wasn't going to rule the world if he had, in consequence, to actually give his allegiance to Satan instead of the Father. He stood firm for those principles which were based on the prophecies of Isaiah, which were those that talked about being the true servant of God. And he also spoke about the return of Yahweh to Zion, the return of God to Jerusalem. Yahweh would return to his people with power and justice, yet gentle as a shepherd. And Jesus saw himself as the shepherd rescuing long sheep, embodying the defeat of evil and the return of God to Zion. Now, perhaps the best way of, of, of understanding this uh, is to just hold on to a phrase that I learned in theological college, and when I did, it was really quite revolutionary because it actually shed new light on the whole of the gospel story and the understanding of the kingdom. And the phrase is simply this, the already, but not yet. The already, but not yet. Well, there was a nice church that wanted to be more modern, so they said, we're, we're not going to just sing hymns from the old hymn book. We're going to have a chorus sheet, and we're going to put all the ones we like on our own chorus sheet. And so they typed it up, and the great day was going to come when they would launch this chorus sheet. And one of their favorite ones was the first one they were going to sing, and it was simply this, Our God reigns. Very good for the kingdom of God. And when they stood up with the chorus sheet in front of them, they read the words, Our God resigns. <laughs> you know, there is a subtle difference there between the two. And sometimes we feel as though our God has resigned, that his sovereignty is meaningless and that evil is getting the last word. We know that suffering is an ever-present reality. And it's difficult to see just how a gracious father can permit such human anguish and earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and other natural disasters to cause such enormous havoc in our, our, our needy world. And then on the TV screens and in our newspapers, we constantly hear of stories of war, and terrorism, and their aftermath. And if we look to our own local newspapers, then all too near home, we find evidence of injustice, insensitivity, corruption, and sheer wickedness. So it's good to say, already the kingdom of God has come in the life and work and death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's fulfilled Fulfillment is in the future. We're in that in-between period between God's supreme action and the natural consequences of it. Think, for example, of a war. The decisive battle is won, and the other side knows it's been defeated, but it's not going to give up yet. Fighting may still drag on. Individual battles may still be fought, but in already... 
or in reality, the overall victory has already been won. In the book of Revelation, that's a picture that is painted. It is, of course, mythological language, but it actually is very, very profound, and uh, you'll get the feel. It talks about a great battle in heaven between the forces of light and darkness. The archangel Michael Michael and his angels are engaged in mortal conflict with the great dragon, that is, Satan or the devil, and his angels. Satan is well and truly defeated, and this leads to a great song of praise with a glorious climax. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows his time is short. And what a lovely picture that is of Satan. It's as if mum and dad have spoken, but two-year-old little Jimmy still goes on and has a right tantrum because he doesn't want to do as he's told, and that's why they call them the terrible twos. And that's the image, isn't it? The victory is won, but the devil refuses to accept it. He therefore goes on fighting as if he's got a chance of victory himself. Well, that is myth and symbol but it does give insight into what it means to say that we live in the days of the already but not yet. Already the supreme work has been done, especially in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Already salvation is a reality. Already his reign has been shown. But there's a lot more to do before the end of time when that job will be completed. And all the consequences of that victory... So, in the life and teaching of Jesus, the kingdom came. In his death and resurrection, the decisive victory was won. In the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we see the power of that victory. And that's what we're praying for. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. Heaven is the realm of perfection. Heaven is the place where God's rule is actually acted and taken seriously. But in Jesus, we've seen it on earth, and now we're called to cooperate with God to turn that vision into reality. For whilst on earth, Jesus embodied the kingdom, and after the resurrection, the church, the people of God, are called to be the leaven in the lump, and this is still our calling. We are to be the people inspired and transformed by the vision and values that we see in Jesus. We are the microcosm of an alternative society, demonstrating what the world is not, but what it one day will be. We are a microcosm of a new community that seeks to live by the teaching of Jesus. Of course we challenge the values of this world, but we do so from a perspective of hope, for we've caught a glimpse of heaven, of another world where the will of God is actually done. And in so doing, we've begun to understand the purpose of human life and history. God's loud amen to all that Jesus stood for, all that he taught, and all that he was and is. That is what the resurrection is all about. His lordship is not just something to celebrate, 
It's the truth by which we live. Okay. Good news. We've come to the end. But there's something there that's really quite profound. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see in him not just a great teacher, but a great example. One who lived his teaching. He didn't just tell us what God wanted. He showed us by the way he lived his life. He taught us that the way of perfect love is the secret of what it's all about and challenged us to put that love into practice. He said, in effect, it's still a difficult world, but I've shown you the way and I've empowered you by my life and work and by the coming of the Holy Spirit to carry on that work. I've empowered you to live to my glory, live in tune with God's perfect will. Now, put it into practice yourself. Live it. Already you've got the values and the vision. Now move to play your part in turning that dream into a reality. And one day you'll see him face to face and see the fulfillment of everything you've worked for, everything you've lived for, and everything that really matters. That's what it means to be truly human as we follow the teaching of the Master. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray that, we say, and I'm signing up to join in that work. I'm making that my own. I'm going to live my discipleship and take that teaching seriously. Amen. <clears throat> There's just um, a little quote. <clears throat> when you hear somebody say, Thy will be done, it sounds fatalistic. Oh dear, everything's gone wrong this week, but I suppose that's God's will, and we'll have to grin and bear it and hope that next week's going to be better. In fact, it's keeping so cheerful like this that keeps me going, really. But no, that is not the Christian approach. It was Archbishop William Temple who said, we've turned what was a triumphant battle cry into a wailing litany. We may live in a Good Friday world, but we are Easter people, and resurrection is the heart of what it's all about. Resurrection is God's amen to everything that Jesus taught us. Amen. Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, that your love may so fill our lives that we may count nothing too small to do for you, nothing too much to give, and nothing too hard to bear for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.